This episode of The Better Business Show is sponsored by Narrative Matters, creating content that sings for organisations that want to change the world. For more details about how we can help you develop amazing content that really works, check out narrativematters.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. Tom, we only get one life and it's a damn shame if you get to 70 and you look back and you know you didn't give it everything you've got. Yeah, I think you're going to like this week's guest. It's Matthew Turner, a man not short of a Turner phrase. He's the author of The Successful Mistake, for which he interviewed more than 150 brilliant business minds to find out how you overcome failure and build brilliant brands. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is episode 15 of The Better Business Show. Thanks for tuning in and coming back to us. Um, so yes, a slight departure from our traditional format for the show. Um, we're not going to be meeting one better business like we normally do each week. Instead, we're going to be hearing about hundreds of, of great businesses. Uh, Vicky Knowles is, is with us once again, so we'll be checking in with her to find out which companies are doing what and why. Uh, so more of that towards the end of the show. Uh, but we're also about to spend some time with a guy called Matthew Turner. Matthew got in touch with me after hearing one of our episodes a few weeks back when we did uh, an episode on Tom Cridland. Um, and he was blown away hearing Tom's story and how he had created this brand of ethical clothing. Uh, here was somebody that you know wasn't even a fashion designer, but just had an idea and a way of doing things differently and wanted to avoid some of the mistakes made by so many other clothing labels out, out there, which are, you know, frankly up against it right now, whether it's because, you know, the cotton they source uh, is under pressure because of water scarcity or whether it's been attacked by an NGO for a lack of transparency. Um, speaking of which, there's a, there's a great campaign going on right now led by Fashion Revolution, which is asking people to, to find out who made their clothes. Vicky Knowles will give us some more details towards the end of the show in the, in the news segment. But anyway, I think the episode... Uh, with Tom Cridland got Matthew Turner thinking about uh, well his book he'd spent the last couple of years in the throes of writing a book which is about to be released it's a book called The Successful Mistake uh, and he meets and interviews 163 different business entrepreneurs and innovators to find out how and why so many great people in business are able to overcome failure and succeed in building uh, brilliant companies um, I've just celebrated the first anniversary of Narrative Matters, my own business, and uh, and going out on my own was something that I'd been seriously thinking about for at least four or five years before actually doing it. But fear held me back, fear of the unknown, I guess. And fear also held me back in launching this podcast, The Better Business Show. I had the original idea for, for doing this at least 12 months before I actually set up and launched the first episode. And you know, why did it take me so long to do that? Well, fear. I was worried that a 1.0 version of the show wouldn't be good enough. And I had to sort of overcome that fear and just get on with with making a decent 1.0 version of The Better Business Show and just to get it out there. And here we are, 15 episodes later. And yes, you know, I'm working hard to try and make this show even better than it is. Uh, and there's, you know, lots more we can do to, 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 to improve things. But it's out there and it's, you know, and a very good number of you are now downloading and tuning in each week, which is fantastic. But failure or the fear of trying something new and then failing is a theme that we've picked up on in previous episodes of the show. If you remember back on episode three, which seems a long time ago now, um, the episode we did with, with Dutch Awareness and we met Reen Otto, the founder of Dutch Awareness, who was bemoaning the fact that people in business, particularly here in Europe, are scared of doing new things, of trialing things, of piloting things, experimenting to find the right formula that works, whether that's developing a new product or creating a new business model or a new way of bringing something to market, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, and as I said then, the journey from where we are, which is frankly unsustainable business models, poorly designed products, old-fashioned service models, uh, from where we are with that that way of being to where we want to get to, which is new, you know, new business models, new ideas, great new products. Many of the things that we've showcased on the show in the last fourteen episodes, better businesses. Um, we're going to need to take some risks, and there will be failure. 
Um, this is all new. Think about Tom Cridland and what he's doing, selling T-shirts with a 30-year guarantee and closing that gap between the suppliers and the consumers. All, all of that you know, is a big risk for him. Very few other companies are doing that. He might well fail, and you know, but he might not. He, he might well succeed and, and do amazing, great things. So that's what we're going to explore this week with Matthew Turner, the author of Successful Mistake. I joined him on Skype and recorded our conversation. So here goes. Matthew, thanks for being a part of the Better Business Show. I know that you got in touch with me after hearing the episode we did with Tom Cridland, a show we did a few weeks back. Um, had you listened to other episodes of the Better Business Show? No, that was one. Of, that was the first. I've, I've kind of dipped into one or two, um, just sort of on the fly. I try and listen to bits and pieces here and there um, when I'm sort of like walking to the train station and things. But uh, but yeah, my attention span is not always the grandest, especially at this time with uh, the book launch coming up. So my head's kind of here, there and everywhere. Yeah. But no, I, I love what you're doing, man. And I think it's just been a fantastic start. I know you're still fresh into the process, but you've um, started full gears, which is great to see. Good, thank you very much. Well, yeah, speaking of your book, um, yeah, I mean, let's start, tell me what, what it is you do. I mean, you're doing all sorts of things right now, aren't you? So so let's start by you, yeah, explaining what, what it is you're up to. All right, no problem. Well, like you say, my name is Matthew Turner. And for the most part, I'm an author. I write both fiction and nonfiction. So in December, just gone, I published my third novel, which is called Iron Love You. And for the past four years, in some form or another, I've been working on my upcoming book, The Successful Mistake which is coming out on June 14th and we're having a big sort of launch month in June. It's going to be hopefully very amazing. It's going, it's by far my grandest project um, I've ever personally undertaken. So it's very exciting. And basically I've interviewed 163 entrepreneurs, thought leaders, authority figures, authors, business owners about their biggest business mistake and then how they transformed that into success. So the lessons they learned from it the key takeaways. And I was intrigued to, to learn what makes successful people successful and how they, you know, are able to turn a bad time into a good one. And whether that's something, you know, average individuals like myself, which I very much consider myself to be like, can we implement that same kind of mindset? Are you born with it? Does it take just a very particular kind of person? And yeah, I interviewed a lot of people, yeah. some incredible stories. I've written the book. It, the book itself goes through seven stages um, from sort of shock through to acceptance. And along the way, then I just kind of pick at different individuals and their stories and just use little quotes and use their stories as that kind of fuel uh, for the fire to, to keep the narrative going. So it's not a book that just has 163 case studies and nothing, but I would personally hate to read a book like that. It's all about narrative. I know you're all about narrative and storytelling. Absolutely. So it's a book that is um, is all about you know the, the journey, the experience from when that mistake first happens to at the end when you're able to look back with hindsight and go, wow, it was hurtful. Like that was a difficult part of my life and it cost me money or it cost me sleepless nights or whatever it might be. Mm. But here I am, I'm able to learn from it and now I've got ideas and I feel like I'm in a better place. So it's just trying to get people more embracing of the mistakes and failures, realizing that yes, it does hurt, that you don't want to make them on purpose, but when they do happen, because they do, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. You just need to take a step back. You need to work through it because at the end of it, you can turn it around. So yeah, that's just a bit of a, an insight into uh, to me in the book. Yeah, and, and, and what, I mean, what prompted you to kind of think, actually, that, that is the book that needs to be written. I mean, I wonder whether it's, you know, based on your own, perhaps your own experience of maybe setting up business or, or, or you know, having some failure in, in some way in your life. Was that what prompted it or was it just something that was just interesting for you? It wasn't a particular mistake or failure as such. It was all around the time when I left my job to start up on my own, when I was going to do some marketing consultancy and focus more on my writing. Right. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but, but I knew I didn't want to work for someone else anymore. And I had the to-do list, I had the business plan, I had loads of things to keep me busy, but that first day I ended up doing nothing because I was scared. Mm. I didn't know which task to tackle first, I was nervous, I was like, mm, I was just tepid to say the least. Mm. And one of the only things I did 
do that day was reach out to those I know in the online scape with their own businesses, people I've met over the years who have their own businesses in some form. And I just asked them if they would meet me for coffee, jump on Skype with me, just give me advice, basically. And I quickly realized after all these talks over the next com coming days, next couple of weeks, that everyone was sharing stories about the times they had failed, about times they'd made mistakes or come across a particular hardship, yet how they had turned it around. And I realized they were looking back on these periods with a, you know, a kind of a badge of honor on their sleeves. They, they weren't necessarily regretful of them because they helped them get to where they are today and they helped move the chains, if you will. And I've always had a, a pretty positive outlook on mistakes. I feel you need to put someone in a position to fail in order to, for them to fulfill their potential. Because if you just protect them, then they're never going to be able to fulfill what they could be. They're just going to remain as is, which isn't what the human race is all about. It's about progression. It's about evolution. It's about, you know, learning for, to crawl and then to walk and then to run. So I thought, what would it be like? Because I can't be the only one here starting a business or wanting to start a business and having fear and all these various obstacles, which for the most part are self-made standing before me. Mm. What if I interviewed a lot of thought leaders, people who I personally admire, ask them about their big mistake and the lessons they learned from it? how they turned it around. Personally, I felt it would be an incredible journey for me, a great way to connect with individuals, a great way for me to personally learn more about what it means to be successful and how to take an, an idea into concept, into reality. But um, I also at the end hoped that it would create a book that would be inspiring and entertaining and full of real wisdom and education for the reader to yeah. help them get to where they want to be too. So that's that's kind of how it all spun. And that was not quite four years ago. It was four years ago this sort of during like launch time, pretty much to the day marks the four-year anniversary of the um, when this journey began. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. I just celebrated my first year in, in business in April. And I know that that kind of fear factor right at the start. Um, so, the, so the book is a step-by-step -step guide to overcoming failure. But you also say that companies can build an audience that kind of, well, the businesses can kind of leverage uh, their mistakes. What what do you mean by that? You mean that that, that actually you can build an interested audience by by kind of being open about the mistakes you've made. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely, yeah. I think transparency and being a little humble, a little humility can go a long way in the business world. People. No, but we're a bit savvier these days. We we know that businesses aren't perfect. We know that businesses turn over millions upon millions, aren't doing everything, you know, perfect and there's not issues going on. We we know there's going to be things going around it. And if you only ever show good stuff, then people are gonna be like, Yeah, this is great, but do I trust it? Mm. It, it just opens up this idea of if they're only sharing the good, then it means that they're hiding the bad. And yeah. what is the bad? So it just opens up these questions. It's not like it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. We're just a bit more savvy these days because there are so many choices, so much chaos, and we have access to so many things. Mm. So I feel as individuals and as businesses, being transparent with you know your journey, your story, the good and the bad, it can go a long way. It makes you human. And I've learned that people who are honest about this you know they, they blog about their mistakes they're open about it you know they admit when they did something wrong in the form of a podcast even if it's just a case of coming on shows like this and sharing a story and not just about all the successes but actually about the business its mistakes mm. it just shows the people listening it shows their audience it shows their customers that this individual this business as a whole is real yeah. But they're not hiding anything from us. So I believe, yes, if you make mistakes, and, and let's face it, you will. As people and as businesses, the businesses we run or the businesses maybe that we work for, mistakes are going to happen. Sometimes they're going to be our fault. Sometimes they're going to be someone else's fault. Sometimes it's a banker's fault who does a bunch of dodgy dealings and causes the entire economy to collapse. But whatever, you know, if, if it turns on to you, it becomes a mistake that you need to overcome you need to tackle and we just need to stop hiding from that back and pretending that mm. they don't happen so when they do be open be honest and i think it can help you really form true connections and relationships with your audience it can turn someone from a mere customer into an advocate into a true endorser of what you do and it's not going to necessarily you know harm your product i mean there's a balance obviously when you're yeah 
make a mistake, you might not be able to share everything because if you're getting products out there and it's not going to harm people, but you've made a lot of mistakes with the products and you know that it's going to cause you know a big swell of people sending stuff back. Whereas if you give yourself a little bit more time, you can maybe fix the issue. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you have to learn what to say and what not to say. That's you know part of the thing. You don't want to put all your dirt like washing out onto the clothesline every single day. That's fine. But being honest with people and saying, you know, this has gone wrong or this could have gone better, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think for the most part, people go, okay, that's cool. I'm on board. I'm glad you've kept me in the loop and you're not trying to just, you know, brush it under the carpet and pretend it's not an issue. Because businesses who do that tend to then just wake up one day and they're out of business. And that's when they have an uproar of their customers going like, what the hell has happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is so much fear attached to communicating, as you say, failure. Uh, in, in episode three of the Better Business <coughs> Show, we, we talked to uh, Dutch Awareness and a guy called uh, Renotto, who's the founder of Dutch Awareness, a, a small uh, fashion uh, company in, in the Netherlands. And he was talking about this notion of, particularly in the UK and particularly in Europe, that, you know, you talk about going bankrupt or having to wind a company up because you just didn't get it right is not something you really necessarily talk to people about. And yet in the States, in the US, it's seen with, you know, much different eyes and people are, you know, quite comfortable about talking about, oh, yeah, I had three bankruptcies and, you know, people give them a, a pat on the back. And it's a really interesting uh, difference, I think, between the two different uh, sides of the pond. Why do you think there's so much stigma attached to the to, to kind of failure? I think it comes back to school, I um, for the most part. I think um, we're, as people, we're born to make mistakes. You think about, I think you uh, mentioned you've got a little a little one yourself. Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah. So you'll probably remember, I've got a son, he just turned three the other month, about what was it, six weeks ago now. And I remember fondly the times when he learned how to sit up, crawl, walk. He's, you know, now just about got talking down. They, you know, we don't just get that. My son had to fall down and bump his knees many times before he learned how to take his first steps. He's had to gargle a whole lot before the words started to come out. Everything we do as people to kind of learn to get from A to B to C is lots of trial and error. It's a lot of little mini failures. That is indeed life. I suppose the point is trying to make um, enough mini failures, enough mini mistakes so you can learn enough to avoid the big ones. And I think in a really dumbed down version of what life is all about, that's kind of how I see it. You know, it's lots of little mini failures, lots of mini mistakes, and hopefully you make enough of them and you'll learn quickly enough to avoid the biggies. But then we get into school and all of a sudden it, you know, failure and mistakes, you know, it results in detention, it results in reading homework, results in disappointment on your teachers faces on your parents faces maybe it's um you know your parents add to that by you know putting pressure on you to do certain things and as you become a teenager it gets hard you know the stigma of society in general you know success is someone who earns this amount of money if he goes to university gets this degree you know you're supposed to be this kind of intelligent you're supposed to get these kind of grades and if you're not you're not deemed you know worthy you're deemed subpar you know below the line so I think between those ages of sort of five, and it's starting younger and younger, unfortunately, but five to like 18, 19, when people are starting to make decisions of their own and it's up to them to then actually take, go away from that, we get put into this place where mistakes, failure, doing the wrong thing, is really frowned upon. Mm. You know, we get, it gets brought up all the time. People catch out on it and they don't say it's okay. Or at least not enough people say it's okay. And there's so much stigma put at least on things like grades and, you know, achieving this and achieving that. And if you don't do this, then you're not going to be considered, you know, successful in the eyes of, well, whoever. Mm. So I think that's kind of where it stems from. And I don't know, I don't think that it's any different per se in America. But I think in America, there's a greater focus on the American dream. Right. I think there's a great emphasis on entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and people taking actions into their own lives. It's this whole idea of land of the free, the American dream. You're brought up a little bit more with that entrepreneurial spirit. So even though you get all that in in school and university, which it is, I've worked in America, I know, but it's just, it's exactly the same. The kids have the same kind of pressures as they do over here. But, um, but yeah, I don't think there's as much of an entrepreneurial spirit and 
that side of things in Europe as there is in America. So when it comes to things like bankruptcy and failure, they're a bit more open because, well, they're just around it more. I think most people in America grow up with knowing people who own businesses, franchises, working for themselves, or at least working at companies where they're given the freedom to be a bit more entrepreneurial, if not entrepreneurial. Whereas that isn't the case so much in, in places like England. I think we are, as a nation, rather kind of working class in the sense of the majority of people we've been brought up over the years. We've, we have the industrial evolution, right? So there's not that many people who own the companies, but there's a lot of people who work within them. Mm. So I think that's kind of like the, the key nature. And that's what I've learned between the differences between America and UK. It's a stereotype. I know I'm generalizing a lot here, but but yeah, that's kind of what I've noticed. And that's why I think the key sort of mindset shift is between the Americans and the, the Europeans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back to the book briefly. The, I mean, 163 interviews, that's a huge amount of work. Uh, any that, that really sort of stick in the mind as being your kind of fave? I mean, obviously, you don't want to give too much away. Uh, <laughs> but uh, any any gems to look out for in the book? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot. I, people often ask me what my favorite is. And, I, and the truth is, I don't have a favorite per se. There's just so many which were amazing. And I value them all in certain, certainly different ways. But there's a few that stand out to me. Um, Debbie Millman, who's the host of Design Matters and one of the executives that's still in brands. Hers was one of the more inspiring ones. And I'll focus on hers real quickly because it focused on the notion of fear. And... I think that is a subject that we've just kind of touched upon now. So yeah, Debbie's was all around fear. It was a very tough one to listen to because on the one hand, it was a mistake in the sense that she felt like it set her back, but she certainly had no regrets because she has this amazing job at Sterling Brands and it still led her down that path. But she still has this wondering what if of had I been braver. It was linked to everything I kind of just said. She finished university and she remembers kind of still standing at this crossroads. And on the one hand to the left were her dreams, what she wanted to do, um, you know, set up on her own, you know, do live a life of more sort of substance and meaning, taking action. Yeah. But then on the right hand side, it was the sensible route, the route that, well, I've just done this degree in university. I should get a job now and I should work up the ladder. And she felt like she chose um, sensible life to an extent, um, placing her dreams to one side, which is, I think, something a lot of people do. And to an extent, probably most people do at some stage in their life. And it's very sad and it's very hard. And it always, almost always comes down to some kind of fear or trepidation where you just think, I want A, but I'm not brave enough to do it. So I'm going to take B because it's easier or it's safer or it makes more sense. And I don't think you ever completely let go of that. You're always going to be wondering, what if? You're always going to be saying, well, what if I was just a bit brave? What if I was like this person? Which gets you into a mindset of making things worse because you start comparing yourself to others. You start blaming yourself. You start guilting yourself out. And in the book, I focus on how that is like the last thing you want to do. It just keeps you in those seven stages longer. And if you want to get to the stage seven, which is all about acceptance, you just need to let go and to indeed accept what you've done. So yeah, Debbie's was a very inspiring story because it really showed that even though, I mean, she's very successful these days, both in an entrepreneurial sense because she's a very renowned author and um, host of Design Matters, but she still works in the corporate world where again, she's a huge success. Yeah, so yeah, she's yeah. kind of on both sides of the scale. So she's got nothing to regret whatsoever, but she still looks back on this period as like her greatest mistake. And I think it's solely just because she like, what if? Yeah, and I think yeah. what if's a really powerful thing that affects most of us. And but I, but the key takeaway was she you know she doesn't regret it because sure. yes she might wonder what if yes she might be like maybe I should have done it I wish I kind of did but I'm not going to regret it because I've still lived a good life and I've still got my action I can yeah. still do what I want with my world and there's no one stopping me so even if you look back and are disappointed of decisions you made in your early twenties let go of them. It's fine. Mm. They were the mm. decisions you made in your early 20s. Make sure that the decisions you make in your late 20s, your early 30s, or your 40s, or your 50s, or your 60s are the best decisions that you can make for you in mm. the here and now. And if you do that, you can still turn things around, even if there might be a 20 or 30 year delay. 
yeah yeah and the more you talk and the more you explain about some of these examples the more it, you know it's quite apparent that this is not necessarily just a business book is it this is a this is i mean you know for for what accounts for for business it also accounts for your for your personal life how how much do you draw from 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 that as well Absolutely. Um, yes. I mean, I couldn't say it any better than what you just said there. First and foremost, this is a book that is being sold for young entrepreneurs, new entrepreneurs, people who are wanting to get into this world. They're trying to, you know, they don't necessarily got it all figured out. You know, they're, they're making maybe decent money, but they still feel like there's more to come. If they have that feeling, you you need more money or you still haven't quite got the speed going or you have, but you know you're not quite there, this is a book for you. So it's being sold on the offset as a book to help you and your business turn mm. things around so you can improve your bottom line. But something that goes on throughout the book is that constant focus on, okay, let's put a line on this right now and bring it back to you, your personal well-being, your personal thing. Because your business and your life, when you own your business, they go hand in hand. It's, you can separate them to an extent, but your business is your baby. I mean, you know this. Your you work for yourself. You know, but if a mistake happens in your personal life, to an extent, you're going to bring this into your business and yeah. vice versa. Because we're human. We don't just get to switch our emotions off at a switch like that. Mm. So it is a huge thing. Yeah. And I, I like to think the book is, is as much about improving you as a person as it is about improving your business. Because if you can really improve you, yourself as a person, then you're going to naturally improve your business. But So yeah, there's yeah. that kind of two-pronged attack throughout where it's helping you overcome your mistakes so you can improve your business decisions, but at the same time, always asking yourself and reflecting, how can I improve me more? And after the book, there's um, a program called the Successful Mindset Program, which again, focuses on both business and personal, but it's very much about you fulfilling your version of success placing a successful mindset into your world because if you do that both your personal life and your business life will improve the result and that is what it's all about so my i suppose my main aim of the book was to first of all educate educate people like how to work your way through step by step entertain through all these stories because people that you've heard about read about heard um, you know listened to on podcasts you get to hear their stories hear their anecdotes hopefully that's entertainment but also inspiration my hope is at the end people have read it and go okay i now know how to transform my mistakes into success but i'm also inspired to want more i'm inspired to take a different approach and to do the best i can because we only get one life tom we only get one life and it's a damn shame if you get to 70 and you look back and you know you didn't give it everything you've got so yeah. yeah, and and the mistakes that that your your interviewees gave as examples of of what's helped them build their their business and overcome some of their failures. Did you see any kind of a patterns emerge? And obviously, you know, humans often show kind of common characteristic weaknesses, I guess. But I wonder if there's any kind of patterns emerging, whether it's demographic or, or uh, geographic. I don't know. Did you see any kind of common uh, pitfalls or traps that people fall into? Not so much when it comes to things like demographics or anything. I mean, I'm not a researcher by trade, so they may have been there, but, you know, I'm quite frankly probably not smart enough to spot them. <laughs> but <laughs> one of the big... I, I kind of start the book off with these seven attributes of a mistake. So, and they were the kind of most common attributes that fit into a mistake. And it's not always just one. Quite often a mistake or a failure will have one, two, three, four, five, maybe all seven. Um, and one of the biggest attributes within that, which I found popping up again and again, very different each and every time, but a seriously common theme was hiring people. And it's a minefield to say the least. So yeah, hiring people was definitely a common attribute. As was fear. Fear was another common attribute. Again, in many different forms, everyone's focus on fear was slightly different, but that sort of end product of fear being the source of a mistake being a sort of huge catalyst to it the communication was another one whether you're talking too much whether you're not talking enough whether you're not listening enough and again communication it it covers the communication you do with your customers and listening to them it involves you know your suppliers your customers your fellow staff members your co-founders communication is such a big big minefield too there's external factors too there's like I said earlier, sometimes it's not your fault that a mistake happens. 
Mm. Sometimes it's purely because, you know, of the economy or maybe some kind of environmental effect, but it's still you who's going to have to turn it around. So that's always a common theme too. Um, so yeah, there's there, there are a few, but hiring hiring was certainly one of the more common sort of attributes. Yeah. So no no particular patterns in terms of demographic, but in terms of the types of mistake, yeah, they were. And we start the book off with those seven attributes because I feel before you do anything else, if you can better appreciate how your mistakes form and what they tend to look like and what category they fit into, it's mm. a bit easier to then look at for the warning signs, and then you move into the pain and everything. So. But, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I'm also interested in kind of different personality types, and I wonder whether you did see a difference in this, and you, you, you know, might not well be the case. But as you know, here on the Better Business Show, we like to focus on those sort of startups and innovators that are trying to create positive change in the world. So, you know, people we meet tend to be people that are in business for reasons other than making a buck or two and you know not all of them and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but I wonder whether there was a difference in in some of the companies you've seen from those that are on the kind of the greener side of ethics transparency doing the right thing and those that uh, maybe you know they haven't even got that in their mind when they've started a business um, there, there are different types of personalities out there and I wonder whether you saw any sort of differences in the types of of people that are running different types of businesses well, not necessarily in that sense, but what I found quite interesting is, is that I would speak to people and um, I would know them as person B. I would know them as a very generous individual, someone who doesn't certainly focus on money, you know, they're more helpful. They are what I consider, you know, a, a more social entrepreneur, mm-hmm. be it through the business they do or just the way in which they um you know, present themselves. But then when they were telling me about their mistake, they were talking about person A, someone completely foreign to me, someone I'm like, you were this guy once? And they were very money focused. They were very sort of power hungry, egotistical, you know, whether it was in their teens or their 20s or their 30s. And I know that doesn't quite answer your question, but I, I've, I've uncovered a lot that people quite often start off as person A. Because, like I said earlier, owning your own business, it, it's one of those things. You've got to earn a million. You've got to grow it to a certain extent. It's, you know, you've got to be extrovert. You've got to be ruthless because this is what society shows to be a successful entrepreneur. But then through a bit of trial and error, through making mistakes, through failing, it makes you humble. It makes you, you know, adds a bit of humility to your day. And people start to realize what success actually means to them. And they start developing a different kind of mindset. And that's when they start becoming more social, more green, more mm. more generous, more helpful, more good, I suppose. So, yeah, that happened quite a lot of times where people would be very much, you know, what I, because I interviewed for the most part people who I admired, people I respected. So I didn't interview too many sort of hard-nosed, ruthless, sales-centric entrepreneurs because that's not the kind of person that I admire. Mm. That's not the kind of person I you know, particularly want to stand shoulder to shoulder. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with being good at sales. I certainly admire people who are good at sales, but the sleazy one who's willing to sell his mother, you know, for the, for an extra 10, 15% of um, market share, which I think, you know, through the movies and how we know, you know, that's kind of what the entrepreneur kind of looks like. That's not the kind of person I interviewed, but I interviewed some who would tell me stories about that exact person. Yeah. And I find it very difficult to put two and two together and say, well, I don't understand how you were once that and you are today this. But a lot of the time it comes through failure and mistakes. So, so yeah, I know that doesn't quite answer your question because I didn't necessarily notice um, any sort of true patterns in terms of you know personality types because I think successful can come across the board. I know people who um, are very successful who are very introverted, quiet, keep themselves to themselves, don't do many events. But, and then people on the opposite end of the scale who are very open, will be at every event possible, very extrovert, very loud, very, um, you know, got the gift of the gab, just very charismatic. And they're mm-hmm. equally as successful, maybe in different ways, but they're equally as successful, free and happy. So yeah, personality types, I think, is a difficult one to hone in on. And yeah. the kind of businesses is exactly the same. You can have a green business, a very social business, that is going about it all wrong. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. 
you know they've got this message they feel like oh because we're green we can do what we want and it's not about that whereas you can have a business where on the outside you think oh this is going to be led by a person who's not going to be very good and you know they're going to be all about this but then you actually find out that they're very generous and they give a great deal and it just happens to be the industry that they're in so yeah there's no necessary patterns so much in that sense but I did learn that Mistakes quite often humble people and turn a once upon a time ruthless individual into a more humble person. Fascinating. Well, listen. Where can our listeners get their hands uh, on this on this book of yours? Well, you can learn all about myself at TurnDog.co. I would love to offer your listeners a free guide. Um, it's called Eleven Things um, You Do Not Want to Do If You Wish to Be Successful. So it's a bit of a guide that gives an insight into the book and a few of the stories that we touched upon and things like this. They can grab that for free at successmistake.com forward slash guide. That is probably a really nice intro into the book and everything. And from there, you'll you'll learn all about the book. So, so yeah, I'd certainly recommend getting the, the guide, successmistake.com forward slash guide. It kind of follows on a lot of the things that we talked upon there. And yeah, hopefully gives you a decent insight into what is and isn't a successful person. So, but yeah, I'm an open book as well as what I write. So, if you, right. if anyone any one of the listeners here has a question, feel free to reach out to me. Email me at mattatturndog.co, or you can send me a, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, whatever you like, whatever you best um, communicate with people. Feel free Thank- to reach out. Great stuff. Thank you, Matthew. That's great. And thanks for sharing your insights and advice. And uh, yes, we encourage everyone to go and look for your book. It's not, it's not out for a couple of weeks, though, is it? It's not, no. So yeah, for, if, if people grab the guide, they'll be notified. They'll get an, I mean, I'll, I probably shouldn't say this, but there will be an opportunity leading up to launch for people to get a free copy of the book. Okay. And there's going to be a window for people to get a free copy. So so yeah, if you um, sign up now, you'll um, be in for some goodies at a later date. But June 14th is when it all comes out. But June as a whole, I've got a lot of things planned. So it's going to be an exciting month. And it'd be great to have um, you guys part of it. Good. Thank you. Well, wonderful. And um, we wish you all the best with the book and everything else you're, you're up to. But uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Matthew Turner there, the man encouraging you to fail fast and then learn from it to be even more successful. Uh, As Matthew said, you can get all the details about him and his business and his books at uh, turndog.co. You might also enjoy his series of videos on his site where he's dressed as James Bond in a tuxedo. Uh, But I love what he's up to and it sounds like a a fascinating book, so do check it out. Um, As ever, you will find uh, all the details of anything we say or mention or reference on the show each week. We we produce what we call show notes online. Just go to betterbusiness.show you can listen to all of our previous 14 episodes as well and you can also fill in uh, your email address in in one of the boxes on there and subscribe to our weekly newsletter to do that as well right it's time to get a brief update on the news from across the world of sustainable business let's find out who's doing what and why with Vicky Knowles hello Vix welcome back hello thank you very much good to be here again Good stuff. Um, let's dive right in then. Um, I'll start. I've got a, a story about Marks and Spencers, the UK retailer. I'm writing a lot about certification at the moment, certification of different commodities. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks back I was in Costa Rica uh, with the Rainforest Alliance recently looking at certification of farms, uh, cocoa, coffee, banana farms out there, um, and how certification is kind of creating more sustainable farming practices. So it's something that's really front of my mind right now. So it's interesting to see that Marks and Spencers has made what it says is an industry-leading commitment to support and improve the environmental sustainability of the fishing sector. Uh, It's signed up to the UK's Responsible Fishing Scheme, the RFS, uh, so there's a whole bunch of seafood, um, seafood sustainability labels, and the RFS is another one. It's a voluntary scheme that sets out some guidelines for uh, for vessels and skippers of vessels to demonstrate uh, that they're doing a good job in order to receive a certificate. Uh, and some of the key areas they're looking at are safety and health and welfare of people on board the ships. Um, so we've had you know loads of labels designed to protect fish stocks in the past. So lots of scare stories about you know in some parts of the world it's a huge problem with some species being completely wiped out. Well, the RFS is a label that focuses on the social issues 
uh, in the seafood sector, which has been a, a, a big, big problem, particularly in places like Thailand, uh, where you've had a whole load of NGO campaigns really targeting um, some of the, the, the truly shocking stories of basically people working as slaves on, on shipping vessels, catching tuna and shrimp. Um, so so M&S's commitment means that all worldwide fishing boats supplying the retailer, and it's a you know, fairly big UK retailer, so it's a big buying potential there. Um, so all those fishing boats will have to gain an RFS certificate uh, by 2021, uh, or at least be looking to towards that uh, with an earlier date of, of 2017 for, for, for ships in the UK. Uh, so it's an interesting story because you know there's been some contention actually recently between the supermarkets uh, and the likes of the MSC, the Marine Stewardship Council, which is one of the biggest sustainable seafood certification bodies. And the MS, MSC issued some research recently that seemed to suggest there was a growing gap between how much sustainable seafood that actually supermarkets were selling. Uh, there was a big gap between what they were selling and what's actually available uh, right now being at an all-time high. So it's a good move by MS. I mean, the fact that the deadline for compliance 2021, which, you know, seems like a, quite a long way off, I think only highlights what they're up against. I mean, you know, it's a big, big issue that needs solving. And I think some of these ships in, in I say, in places like Thailand have got a long way to go before they're able to meet these standards. Yeah, it's so interesting about this issue of crew welfare. I mean, it's just something, you you know, there's this, it seems to be this huge thing in certification around fish stocks and you know, overfishing and that kind of being the issue and, and which fish to buy rather than kind of the, you know, how the, the crew are, are looked after on the ship. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I didn't really hear about that much in the past. But, um, yeah, so I think it's it's a great thing and M&S is a real leader in the sustainability space. So hopefully others will join on to this voluntary scheme. Um, and it's, it's nice that they're humble enough to recognise that, like, they need to team up with industry to, make a bigger impact i guess we can't start this monday without mentioning last week's fashion revolution week so as your listeners probably know april 24th 2013 marked the day of the rana plaza factory collapse in bangladesh killing over 1100 people and injuring another two and a half thousand so it's just a horrendous event um so then the Fashion Revolution Day was born and subsequently this year it was the Fashion Revolution Week so it's getting bigger. Um, people have been taking to Twitter, turning their clothes inside out and asking brands who made their clothes. Now to give a bit of insight, the Fashion Revolution Behind the Barcode report published this time last year found some pretty eyebrow raising stats like 91% of companies don't have full knowledge of where their cotton is coming from. And over 85% of companies are not paying their workers enough to meet basic needs. And that really is quite shocking. Um, so the report graded 219 major fashion brands with companies like Skechers and Quicksilver ranking pretty poorly on traceability and transparency, while high street favorites like Inditex, sorry, who own Zara and H&M were rated highly. But speaking of H&M, it just so happens that they launched their World Recycling Week to coincide in the very same week as Fashion Revolution this year. This has basically gone down like a lead balloon after Lucy Siegel wrote an opinionated piece for the the Guardian comment is free, um, accusing H&M of corporate greenwashing, objecting to the mostly to the timing of their campaign, coinciding with this very grassroots initiative. Um, and she's basically saying that getting people to recycle their old clothes in exchange for vouchers to in turn buy more clothes is somewhat stealing their thunder in the awareness fashion revolution is trying to bring to workers' rights and thinking about who actually made the clothes in the first place. Um, since, so since then, it feels like the whole of Twitter, or at least the circles I'm in, share the same opinion as Lucy. Um, so I'm really interested in what your take on this is. Yeah, I think she, she, thinks she makes some good points in her piece. Uh, I, I think the fashion revolution campaign is brilliant. I think you know, coinciding it with the the anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster is is you know gives that kind of poignant poignant context, which is what you need. Um, I mean, H and M are, are capitalising on this things this campaign, but I quite like the fact that they're linking it to the consumer, which is all very uh, you know all very important. There seems to be a very interested community of young shoppers that are interested in this stuff, asking the right questions about who made my cut clothes and using that hashtag. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, as you, as you rightly say, it's making 
companies really question and, and ask serious questions of themselves about their supply chain. Uh, I think there was like 27 brands that were caught up in the, the Rana Plaza disaster um, and they had no idea that they were even connected to that complex that, 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 that collapsed. Uh, and they had absolutely no idea where their clothes were being ma made, and, and now they do. So, it, you know, I think campaigns like this are really forcing companies to think more about their supply chains uh, than than they've ever done. So, I think it's it's great. So, also on Friday it was Earth Day. Um, I found a great article on DigiJ that says our BS detectors are high, and the reaction to that H&M initiative is a great example. Um, so the article suggests that when brands are simply being opportunist and tying into um, things like Earth Day for the sake of a marketing boost, you know, we can tell, and it could backfire. So it's mostly risky for companies who aren't exactly known for their do-good business and aren't walking the talk, basically. Um, and that goes not just for Earth Day, but for any marketing campaign throughout the year. Um, so sometimes these aren't necessarily about greenwashing. Um, it could be all good intentions, and who knows, maybe H&M's initiative genuinely was. Um, but an, an example that the article cites is the Starbucks initiative last year where baristas were told to start conversations about race with customers waiting in line. <laughs> and it's not necessarily bad, but it just rubbed people up the wrong way. And uh, obviously, Starbucks received a lot of backlash from consumers about that. <laughs> um, but in terms of Earth Day this year, um, there was a roundup on sustainable brands looking at companies that are genuinely doing things in the spirit of Earth Day. So uh, natural personal care brand Toms of Maine teamed up with recycling firm TerraCycle on the hashtag less waste challenge, uh, where consumers are invited to take an online pledge to cut their household waste by one pound a week. Um, and the Less Waste Challenge website provides a bunch of tips and suggestions like paying your bills online and using travel mugs instead of paper cups, you know, very simple, simple changes you can make. And then probiotic skincare company Mother Dirt is contributing 20% of its proceeds from April 12th to 26th to Conservation International Save a Mile of Ocean campaign. Um, and also those who buy a Mother Dirt product during those two weeks will also be entered into a giveaway where they can win a year-long 25% discount. So good for the good for the charity, good for the consumer potentially. Um, and then non-profit Positive Impact aims to create, uh, which aims to create a more sustainable event industry, hosted the hashtag CSR Share Day conversation on Twitter. So the idea was for people to share best practice and wisdom on this year's theme of carbon, um, as well as positive impact and others um, taking the opportunity to share how the event industry is actually taking positive action. It, it's the same every year. I mean, Friday was a hu you know, hugely busy day on social media. My inbox suddenly got filled up with you know, press releases and emails from people making you know, one statement or another about something to do with Earth Day. Uh, yeah. It is easy to be cynical about this stuff. You know, companies jumping on the bandwagon. Um, I think the same happens where, where we have um, Earth Hour when you know everyone turns their lights off. But you know, it's maybe a fairly useful tool to pin messages around. Um, and if it's a mechanism that kind of ends up reaching out to somebody that doesn't really think about this stuff, then you know, job done, really, I suppose. But but yeah, interesting to find out who's been doing what to to celebrate on Fridays. So thanks for that, Vix. Um, let me finish with this one. We've talked on the show a lot about the problem of plastic waste and the fact that our oceans are getting filled up with plastic by 2050. More plastic than fish will be in our oceans. Um, well, plastic cutlery is a big contributor, apparently. Uh, estimates suggest that the US alone uses 40 billion plastic utensils a year, uh, yeah. most of which are not... I know, yes, it's enormous. Most of which are not recycled. Uh, I guess because you know they're contaminated with food, so it's not always easy. Uh, but there's a new company on the block, an Indian company called Bakeys, um, and it'd be great to get them on, show, in, on the show. I was uh, just thinking that you should get them. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> to, I, I will. I will try and get get in touch with them. But they're making cutlery you can eat. Um, so this cutlery is made from rice, wheat, and sorghum. So sorghum is the is the key ingredient um, because it, it's kind of got this tough quality. It doesn't go soggy. In, in liquids and because it's kind of suitable for cultivation in sort of semi-arid areas it's you know it's a, it's a great great source of um well great great resource for this product 
Um, and the cutlery comes in three flavors. You've got a savory flavor, salt and cumin, a sweet flavor, which is mainly sugar, and then a plain flavor. The company's founder says the cutlery tastes like a cracker and can complement any food because the taste of the food just gets into the spoon. Um, so, yeah, what do you think, Biggs? I think, oh, this is probably my favorite story of the day, actually. Um, but I'm quite intrigued to how it would feel like to use in practice because um, – on the article, the Guardian article about it, there's um, a picture of the spoon in ice cream. And for me, I'm always bending metal spoons when I'm scooping ice cream. Not that I eat it all the time or anything, but it'd just be interesting to know how tough it is, like what can it stand? <laughs> um, but that said, I really hope it takes off because it's such a cool idea and it's really simple. Um, but could make a huge difference. Um, well, yeah, I think well, people were buying into it. They, they started a crowdfunding campaign uh, on Kickstarter, <laughs> which had an original goal of $20,000. It's it's raised 12 times that already. So people are obviously buying into it and seeing it as a, as a potential... Uh, yeah, a potential solution to the problem of plastic cutlery ended up in our oceans. Um, before we let you go, I know you've been busy these past few weeks developing a, a new blog... Uh, for everybody to enjoy. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes, so I've just started this new blog called Susty Girl um, and it's basically aimed at young women who are compassionate about people and planet. Um, so I'm not sure how many of your listeners fall into the kind of young women demographic but it's kind of a hybrid women's empowerment and sustainability goings on, tips, listicles, that kind of thing. So it's supposed to be quite a fun little side hustle that hopefully people can relate to or find some useful information. Um, but one of the key pieces of content I want is Q&As with cool women doing cool things, basically. So um, I'm interviewing people at the minute, and there should be some uh, Q&As up from next week. But um, I don't know. If it, I'm always looking for ladies to get involved. So if any of your listeners are interested in being profiled, you know, I'll shout about it on social media and try and like um, share it with as many people as possible. Um, so if you go to sustygirl.co, you can see what it's all about and find my contact details on there as well. Great. Thanks. It's sustygirl.co. Um, yeah, everyone check it out. Unless you're old and male, a bit like me. <laughs> uh, nothing like appealing to the masses, Vix. Um, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Well, we'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. That's it for another week. Thanks again for tuning in. Please don't forget to spread the word about The Better Business Show and subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud if you haven't already done so. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>